We're starting with 14.8. We're in the second triennial. As you guys know, you go through second triennial this year of a portion called Shlach. Now, it begins, and I want to give a little background of what we got last year in the triennial because I think it makes a big difference as to what we're going to look at today. It begins by Moses picking the 12 representatives, the heads of the different tribes to go in as spies and to scout out the land. Now, this is really important because it's a reminder to us that what we read in Torah is more about truth than it is about fact. And to say this again, because I'm going to respect the triennial, but I'm going to give it two minutes of the first year of the triennial. There is a line that talks about the grapes so large that they had to be carried on two wooden planks. And uh, Barry and Dana, when you hear this tomorrow, just act surprised because I'll, I'll begin with this, this part for tomorrow's study as well. But so they carry it on two planks. On giant, giant, giant grapes. Now, for those of you who have been to Israel or those of you who have studied the history of Israel, was the land blooming with such uh, fertile land that grapes would be the size of our heads when the people first got there? No, but there was milk and honey. Okay, there was milk and honey, but there wasn't six foot tall bundles of grapes. And they really specify a lot of rocks. (laughs) They might have been hallucinating, right? They're just taking giant rocks back with them and trying to bite them. Uh, But the whole notion here is that they they saw this gorgeous, fertile, beautifully blooming land. And yet one of the classic things we know about Israel is what makes the land bloom is the relationship between the people and the land. It's the people who go in and figure out the irrigation and figure out how to make the desert bloom. So for the spies to go in and see that it was blooming already and then have other fears should tell us that there's a difference between truth and fact, that sometimes we're talking about the personification and the the illustration of the land, not about the factuality of the land itself. And I say that because it's going to help us to break into this notion of uh, the different characters, but yes, Mariana. I'm sorry, I'm a visitor. But aren't we talking about the changing climate and uh, in in the same land? And uh, maybe in that time it was not desert. Maybe it was more forested. Maybe it it, it was more fertile, like other places had a change of um, of weather. Yeah, Very, you know, I I do love that notion of bringing in what could be science-wise, but yet they wandered through the Sinai and the Sinai was desert. And so this notion that this one piece of land adjacent to the Sinai would be so wildly different still, I mean, for me, it doesn't resonate. Could that be an explanation? Absolutely. Um, but, But one of the reasons that I like to take this notion of the grapes and run with it as, uh, as literature and not as, fact is that what it does is it allows us to read the rest of this portion and quite frankly all of Torah with a lens of what fact is being what what truth is being given here and so remember 12 spies 10 of them take a look 10 of them take a look and say can't do it and two say well wait 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 you're really going to lose faith in God now now after all this so 14.8 begins with us saying from God, the, the, from 14.8 begins with the end of this appeal from Joshua and Caleb. 
Now, show of hands, who recognizes the name Joshua from the text? Now, for people who haven't studied this maybe extensively before, who thinks of Caleb when they think of a leader of Israel? This guy doesn't get the same credit as Joshua. Now, granted, Joshua is going to secede Moses, and so his role is different. But Caleb has an incredibly powerful and profound role in this moment, one that makes his character crucial to the development that's going to go forward. A friend of mine is a rabbi down in Santa Monica. We study together every week. And right now he is tasked with providing the um, weekly portion for the reform movement's website. And this week's portion, he specifically related to the show Ted Lasso. Who here has seen the show Ted Lasso on Apple TV? Fantastic show. If you haven't, I highly suggest you find a way to do so. It is really wonderful television. And without giving much away, the premise of the show is that the nicest, painfully nicest man on the planet is the coach for a professional football team in in England. And he's so nice that you should want to hate him is almost obnoxiously nice. It's egregiously nice. Everything he does is sweet and kind and nice and too happy all of the time. And there's a world in which we could say that kind of happiness makes others feel bad because they can't achieve happiness all the time. And then as you pull back the layers and the onion, you'll see more about his character development. But Ted Lasso's character is supposed to be one of a different spirit. I don't think that came from nowhere. And neither does my friend Alex, by the way, who wrote this Devar. He shared that in our text, we actually have a line. Verse uh, 1424. It says here that Caleb had a Ruach Acheret. Who can tell me what a Ruach Acheret is? Different spirit. A different spirit. Now, what do you think that means in a text like Torah? To be told that a character has a Ruach Acheret. That they're going to be an important character? Okay, that's a very good first assumption, right? Like, they're going to be an important character here. Yet, Caleb is widely under-recognized compared to Joshua. Okay, so yes, important character. What else? But different different from whom or what? Interesting. So different from who? Out of this world. Say that they don't fit in a neat little box, or they're kind of in a different mindset or sensibility than the majority of the people with whom they interact. Yeah, that he was imbued with a different spirit. It means out of this world. Okay, that Caleb was just out of this world. Okay, what else? Have you ever met someone with a different spirit? Just a different energy and soulfulness or by the way that's only if i'm spinning it to my bias of positive but the different spirit might be uh incredibly focused and soulful the the different spirit can be so many different things as bert said also compared to what if you're comparing caleb to the other 10 spies who clearly had fear in their hearts maybe that's the different spirit so what else So Alex connects it to Ted Lasso. And at first I thought, "Eh, okay, I'll ride that wave for a little bit. It's nice. It's a couple paragraphs long. It's a beautiful idea of this notion that a different spirit can come in and shake the whole program. Ted Lasso's 
obviously an effective role. Otherwise, they wouldn't have eight episodes and a, and a renew for season two. So obviously, it's effective in, in who he is and his character development. But actually, what jumped out to me the most about my friend's explanation is Coach. Coach Ted Lasso. We hear about Joshua, but we don't hear about Caleb. And yet in our text, if we go to verse, we scroll down a little bit further, Joshua speaks up from the energy and presence of Caleb. Caleb serves as a reminder of the capability and possibility of what Joshua can possess and create. Caleb is in some ways the perfect exemplar of a coach. What is the value of a coach in society to us personally? What does it mean to have a coach? Ideally, it's to bring out the best in the team. Okay, so a coach can bring out the best in the team. Go even, you know what, though I love the team analogies, let's drop the team for one minute and go to personal coach. I think it'll be a little bit easier for us to grasp. What would a person? What is the value of a personal coach? I, I think it's the same to bring out the best. If it's a life coach or if it's a SAT tutor, it's to raise you up. They're able to to look at and see everybody's unique gifts and strengths, and but then they, also, they tell you what to do. Yes, we're or give you um, pointers on how to express what you know, but you haven't taught anybody yet, perhaps, and how to then give what you know to those that you are coaching. They give you a different perspective. Different perspective, yeah. Underlying support. Underlying support, okay. Perspective, support, a reminder, uh, a refocusing. All this is very, very true. Coaches, what they do is they... uh, they bring us into understanding our best version of ourselves in a funny way. They are an external verification of our own self-worth. Now, that's a very interesting phrase, right? How can one be an external verification of our own self-worth? Self-worth comes from within. And so this notion that you'd find a person that you'd trust so deeply that they can be an external verification, an external reminder of just how valuable and important you are that's a really powerful thing. Yeah. And Melinda coach definitely has some steering and pointing along the way. And in fact, I'm so sure that Caleb is an example of coach that we actually end up seeing two more examples of coaching inside the same piece of triennial. It is clearly trying to drive home this notion that you once again, and we've learned this from the past, cannot do it alone. When Moses tries to do it alone way back when Yitro says, Get your head out of the clouds. You can't do this. And so now 12 spies go in. They all come out. They all say, oh, my God, it's terrible. It's never going to work. Caleb and Joshua step up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Trusting God matters here. It's worked with faith. God says this is going to work. I think if we work together and we do things right, it's going to be able to be pulled off. And then what do you think happens? God has a little talk with Moses. what do you think that talk sounded like if you could be a guessing person of all the times you've seen God interact after the people complain about God? God's not happy. Now, I actually had a bat mitzvah student yesterday who told me, God seems pretty frustrated in a lot of Torah. And I said, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's fair. 
And yet in this portion specifically, that frustration actually brings us to a really strong level. God says to Moses, how long will these people spurn me? How long will they have no faith in me despite all of the signs I've given them? Bert, you called it out, milk and honey falling from the sky. I've called it before the biblical cloudy with a chance of meatballs. How could you possibly not have faith in God after God serves you a meal from the sky? And so God gets frustrated and says, I'm, I'm going to take them out. I'm going to strike them down. Pestilence, disown them. I will make you a new nation because this people, I can't anymore. They just have no faith over and over again. And Moses says to God, if the Egyptians hear about that, what is that going to say about you and backing the right people? What is that going to make you look like, God? Are you really going to be able to hold the same status of being the God if you couldn't even get the people to believe you and instead you gave up? And then Moses says, therefore, I pray. God, be slow to anger, abounding in kindness, forgiving in iniquity and transgression. Do not remit all punishment, but visit the iniquity later. Think about it slower. Don't react so abruptly. Doesn't Moses sound like a coach in this moment? Moses, I mean, this is also pretty brazen. Moses coaching God from God's first gut reaction. Now, a lot of people will not like He's, yeah, talking for, God, he's talking God down off a ledge. More he's, than just, yeah, no, no, yeah. definitely talking God down and then redirecting God. Don't just not be angry with the people. Don't just be worried about what Egypt thinks. And why don't you do it this way? Why don't you react to the people in this manner? Why don't you use patience and systemic, uh, slow, methodical moves to move the people into where you want. And then Moses says, I pray the iniquity of this people, according to your kindness, as you have forgiven them every single time since Egypt, please continue to forgive them. And then God says, okay, I'll do what you ask. Now, if I told you the story again, but omitted God and Moses, that story is very clearly of a life coach of a trusted companion, of a friend, of a guide, of a mentor who helps the character not go with the first reaction. And it's beautiful. And it's it's exemplary of the way we live through life and find our, our trusted guides. But it means something different when we see Moses coaching God. Yeah, Barry. Um, yeah, quick question. Um, it might, reminds me when my line of work when we have um, a, a, a staff member who's a council uh, is uh, really that that's the text uh, that he recites to teachers when they are very angry at the students <laughs> and uh, um, and I'm not sure what are what they are called in the American system um, but they counsel students and they also counsel teachers and the guidance counselor. Guidance counselor, yeah, that's right. So that that's how I'm you know, I'm getting this as a guidance counsel. <laughs> you know, don't be angry. They they are kids. What what does it say about you as a teacher if you can't, you know, pull them together? Yeah. But a guidance counselor only works 
if the teacher is willing to recognize in a student, but in this moment, I'll go with the teacher, that it's okay if they can't pull it off every time, that it's okay for students, certain students to ruffle their feathers so much worse, that it's okay for them to need someone else to pull them back and say, deep breath. It doesn't change how effective or successful or pure of heart you are in your career. Sometimes you're going to want to slam the door. And God is angry. And and Moses doesn't say, I'm done with you. I'm done with you getting angry. I'm done with you threatening the people. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Moses doesn't do that. Moses doesn't hold God accountable for that feeling. Moses shifts God into a different perspective. Now, again, I'll repeat. Do we actually, as a tradition, there are a few, there's some tension here. There are some who will say, you can't move God. That's not how God works. God is an omni-everything, right? Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. How do you move God? Yeah, Edward, that is literally what my student said. Word for word, she said, sounds like anger management would have been beneficial to God. And again, that might be difficult for some people to hear. Barry, that's true, but we're getting there in another week's portion. Don't give it all away at once, right? Anger management is something that was clearly necessary. But if you don't have a perspective that God and humanity are in relationship, then this can be problematic. How does one allow our interpretation to say that Moses, a mere human, is able to coach God into a different perspective. What does that say for our relationship? I just want to say, you know, it sounds like it's an ideal relationship. Well, because first of all, what would happen if they said, I'm done with you, you know, then the book would be over. Okay. But, um, but in an ideal relationship, you know, only one gets to be crazy at a time. The, it's the other person's role to talk them down as it is, as it is Moses and God. In, so I think it's just illustrating that. Doesn't it also illustrate that uh, though God has created us in his or her own image, we have also created God in our image. And rather than a punishing God, we choose to have uh, one who forgives us. That's just a question. Look, I think I think that is very, very true of how we see this theological uh, development. And I think that that's true on the side of how we got to this character. <clears throat> I think that the the difficulty is in recognizing that some people don't want a God that can be moved. This, this goes much deeper into the core of how we want to approach the relationship with the divine. Now, for me personally, I see this as a beautiful moment. I see this as the same reason that I start my Friday night services by telling people that the spirit that we bring into the space actually creates the beauty of Shabbat. You know, that Ruach Acheret that Caleb holds in that moment, we get to utilize that in Shabbat. I walk through those doors, it's different now. I light those candles, my space is different now. But more than anything else, there is a, there's the thought that it's not only that we observe Shabbat, but we protect Shabbat. 
we cultivate Shabbat. We create its beauty and its holiness. If we did not observe Shabbat, God's Shabbat would not be observed. And therefore, we are as crucial to the system as divine itself. There's a partnership there. And so that's part of how I read that idea. Yeah, Susan, you're muted right now, Susan. Okay. I was just going to say that what I had wanted to say, both George and, and, and Jody said better than I could have. So I put my hand down. But okay. last week we talked about um, Moses. God talked about Moses being the only person who could talk to him face to face. Yeah. And I think one thing we have to cope with is that our, and I'm certainly not Orthodox, but that our relationship vis-a-vis God is far more distant than was that. Okay. But perhaps we're not giving. Yeah, I don't think. Oh, I'm sorry. Interrupt. No, please, Linda. Perhaps we're not giving Caleb um, some recognition here. He's one, a person that nobody knows really well, and he might have a, a different point of view. I mean, I've been in, like in, in a committee meeting where um, everybody is ready to vote on such and such, and then the person way in the back raises his hand and says, but what if, and everyone goes, oh, that might be something we really need to talk about or think about or or do. And maybe this is where Caleb brings his talents to the table. That's, ex- that's exactly right. That Caleb, it's not just about a gift of optimism. It's about choices that Caleb is making. Right. Caleb could be weighed down by the cynics, right? Caleb could choose darkness instead of light. There's 10 spies who are saying the, the weighed down option. Caleb could have been silent but instead speaks up. Caleb could have taken this faith and said, there's no way, but instead sees it and turns it to optimism. And in fact, Caleb's choices create an effect that allows Joshua to speak up and the people to start hearing. Coaching matters. Coaches have to have a presence that gives you faith in them. And when it comes to God and Moses, I know that's a little bit harder to kind of take in and work with, but this idea that we need people in our lives and that, by the way, we are not discounted for having those moments. If we find the safe people in our lives, the people who we can trust to guide us, those teachers aren't bad teachers when they need a time with the guidance counselor. This God is not now a bad God for having moments where God is frustrated. Leaders are not bad leaders for needing a break once in a while from their community or someone else to say, okay, calm down, deep breath. Am I to pretend that I've never been upset with someone on the phone? That I've never raised my voice ever before? I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Two days ago, I I showed this picture. My daughter dropped 3,000 beads on the ground. You don't think? 3,000 beads at once causes a bit of anger? I mean, then laughter afterwards, the picture is quite hilarious. But of course, we all get worked up. We all have moments of losing our clarity. We all have moments of frustration. The difference is, do we have someone in our court to pull us back, to give us that perspective, to truly enhance our ability? I would argue that Moses makes God a better God. And again, I know that that is a problematic argument for some people. The notion that we can enhance God makes us a little too powerful. 
But I bring you right back to that question of Shabbat. If we don't celebrate Shabbat, Shabbat is just a day of the week. It's us choosing to make it holy, putting in the value and energy and love that makes Shabbat special. Yeah, we don't have glitter in our house, Jody. There's a no glitter policy. Um, <laughs> Dan, uh, this this reminds me a bit about Abraham and God in uh, the book of Genesis and the whole discussion over Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham is calling God to task and saying, you're supposed to be the God of justice. And they have that whole discussion. If there's, you know, 45 people or 40 people, will you, will you spare them? And it, Really, uh, I think the point you've been made, you've made for me is such an important one that the whole idea of the angry, judgmental, perfect God who just commands, uh, really, do, it certainly doesn't work for me and it doesn't work for a lot of Judaism. And instead, a lot of our tradition has God very much in partnership with human beings and a covenant which is what it is, a breed is two-sided. There are obligations on both sides. And that's what our that's what our story is, that we and God both have both have obligations and that we're both in this together. You may have heard Rabbi uh, Amy speak before about the uh, messianic age. It's one of those moments that uh, I, I, I love disagreeing with rabbis. And unfortunately here, Rabbi Amy and I don't disagree. So it's far less exciting in that moment that the messianic age, this is one of the most profound and important distinctions when it comes to how we perceive faith. I don't think some army general is going to ride in on a horse anointed by oil. First of all, I don't think that person would be effective. I think we think they were cuckoo banana pants. Let's be very real. If a person rides in now on a horse telling us how they're going to change the whole world, we're going to make a few phone calls. But beyond just that fact, I'm not waiting for someone. We have the ability, Lee, you're right, to remind God and pull God back from anger. We have the ability to be called upon to create the messianic age. If we are truly people of faith, it means we are required to be people of action. Because this portion is making it very clear. Faith is relationship and relationship is not passive. What this should be telling us is we are not allowed to be passive. Now, again, I'm kind of yelling into the the wind a little bit or preaching to the choir because you're here on a Friday morning. Your faith is not passive. You're looking to grow and to learn and to connect and to be. But that reminder that faith is not passive is one that, cannot be lost. We have an obligation. If we see something we want to make better in the world, we make it better. Will that have the spirit or the energy of the divine behind us? Yeah, but can you just wait for God to do it? No, because the things that we need in this world to make the world a better place, we crafted and designed by humanity in so many ways, which means we have an obligation to do them. I believe in the messianic age. I believe that we can make the world a perfect place. I believe that is the notion of the Messiah. 3,500 years ago, people weren't ready for that. They needed a role model, a figure, someone to, to park that faith in. But we have a more modern sensibility. We have more perspective and notion of the world around us. I will never be the rabbi who believes the old saying that the rabbis became less and less wise as they got further from the time of Torah. 
That can't be so. Every time we allow scientists to push forward and discover new truths, we discover new unknowns as well. We are wiser than we were 100 years ago, and we will always be that way. My grandkids will be a billion times smarter than me. My kids too, but I'll have to be a part of shaping them. So if they're not, it'll be my fault. But my grandkids and my great-grandkids and generation after generation will prove to be more effective, more balanced, more clear-minded. Now, some of you might say, I don't agree with that. And maybe I'm wrong, but I see like seven-year-olds doing math that I did in 10th grade. And there was no way I could have done that at seven. And the world is pushing us forward to learn differently. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be negatives with that. There will always be need for coaching, for guidance, for wisdom. I do not believe that the next generation can now do it alone. That would be irrational. All the voices in a space are needed. There's coaches for very different perspectives and needs across the board. But I do believe we're moving forward. And I do believe that we are a better partner to God now than we were 100 years ago. And so if we are going to be a partner to God, if we're going to bring about a messianic age, if we're going to believe that we're in relationship, that means that relationship is active and not passive. Now, I saw some people shaking their heads. Please, I would love to hear those thoughts. Yes, Bert. I'm going to be slightly, slightly contrarian. I'm sorry if there's noise behind me. Uh, It's one thing to move ahead scientifically and in terms of mathematics. And I think clearly we're doing that. I mean, our seven-year-old today knows more about mathematics and how the universe works than Galileo did and Aristotle. Uh, But the issue of morality and ethics and other kinds of truth, I don't necessarily think we're always, by definition, moving forward. And I think that that there is there's knowledge and wisdom from 2000 years ago that in some ways is, quote, smarter than how we are today. So I would agree Uh, with you if you're talking about factual and practical knowledge, moral and ethical and other types of things. I think that's a lot more problematic. So let's dive into that for a moment, because there's two pieces of of truth that we need to recognize how it is said, and how it is perceived. Those are very different things. When we read a 2,000-year-old piece of text, as we're doing right now, the whole notion of Torah living and breathing is that as we breathe life into it in the way we perceive it, and we digest it, and we then produce out our own feelings and thoughts on it. So I will agree there is wisdom to be found in 2,000 years ago, but I would disagree that 2,000 years ago's capability to digest and be motivated by that wisdom is more effective than it is today. Because 2,000 years ago, we were okay with slavery. And 2,000 years ago, we were okay with women being property. And 2,000 years ago, we had all kinds of very, very clear, uh, irrational, not as ethical as we are today truths. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of things. And, And by the way, we're talking 2,000 years right now, not 50 years, right? And it doesn't mean that there aren't other truths that we might have been more aware of and are now cluttered and distracted by some of the chaos in the world around us. That's also true. But this idea that morally we might have been in a better spot then than now doesn't take into account all the other things that might have been around us. And so I, I'm not saying that that is what you said, but I will no, say I, that. I was, I, was, I was not saying morally we were in a better place than now. I was just merely saying that there 
that one has to distinguish between kind of scientific and oh, practical, of course. quote, of course. learning yeah. and other types of learning uh, where in some ways maybe we're more advanced and in other ways maybe we're not. Yeah. Know? But for instance, on my Zoom, it says his, him. On a few of yours as well, there is there is pronouns. And for others of you, there's not. And there's no there's no problem here for I don't need people to be changing their Zoom. But what I will say is I've talked to seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, fifteen-year-olds, five-year-olds, not as much about this. But these kids and things that we wrestle with as adults as to whether it's right or wrong, in their minds, that moral decision is already made. They already know how they feel about that. They already don't want to be interfering with someone's truth and identity. I would argue that in a lot of ways, and by the way, it's the product of all the work that the people on this call, I see my son, he is the product of the work that I put in. These things are good, but I do think we have moved in a lot of ways in the moral direction. And so we can't, release the truth. We can't throw it away. Look, I'm teaching a 3000 year old book, right? This has been the longest running book club in history, and it's going to keep going because there's always truth to be found in it. But the truth that's being found is also moved by the social and uh, societally accepted truths. And we do move forward on that. The notion that there would be a, a separated lunch counter is God willing, never going to ever be able to happen again. And so I think that recognition, and you're absolutely right, there's a difference between the, the academic studies and the kind of ethical moral studies. But that recognition of those truths is actually proof to me of this relationship between humanity and the divine. I don't ever think God created a system that was meant to have that kind of judgment within it. I think that was humanity on, hum, on, on humans' growth through kind of what's fair and equitable and just. And by the way, we're not done. There's a lot more to do. There's a lot more to fix and to heal in this world. And if we want God to be a part of that, we have to actively push God to be a part of that. We have some thoughts here. I saw some people with some different thoughts. I do welcome the thoughts. I don't want you to feel like I... I, I, I would love to hear them. Just remember you're muted. Yeah, Susan. I, I just I just like thinking about the fact that it, it's in our science fiction literature and movies that the future relationships with God are, are offered to us. That, that Interesting. That's, you know, I think of Stephen King, I think of Deep Space Nine, um, even Voyager, if we want to look for examples of what future relationships could look like. There are authors and directors out there willing to offer them to us. Yeah. And Melinda. Um, I am thinking about uh, something that it's important to me in conversations about the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice, that it doesn't just happen on its own. And it's a mistake to think that there's just a natural linear progression from in the past, people were more prejudiced and today people are more enlightened. That doesn't just happen. It is the responsibility of communities of people to build more just, inclusive and equitable societies and learning things like, oh, pronouns matter and putting them in your Zoom display name can uh, you know, help to create a more welcoming community. And a thing that um, I point to often when I teach around, um, you know, the 
inclusion, morality, and justice of uh, a community changing over time and not being an automatic linear progression is that um, many people don't know that a lot of photographs of book burnings from the Third Reich were in fact research from a world-renowned gender and sexuality scholarly institution in Berlin. Uh, Some of the best research on human sexuality and gender diversity was being done in Berlin in the 20s and 30s, and the Nazis burned it all Um, and and imposed a really strict gender binary um, misogynistic social order that is part of fascism. Um, There was a much more inclusive understanding of human sexuality a century ago before a specific group of people imposed an oppressive sexual ideology. Um, It's not automatic and linear, and we have the ability to decide whether we are going to create more equitable and inclusive communities. And um, that's a fun historical fact that I like to point out to people. So thank you for letting me share it. Thank you for sharing it. I have Judith and George. My feeling is that We are in a very dangerous place right now. This is one of the greatest challenges I have felt in my lifetime, which granted is only a short 80 years when we look at a 2,000-year-old book. But I see such moral dilemma in our society and in the world right now with disease and politics and and, uh, people who are are trying to run the world themselves in a totally unethical, dishonest way. And I don't feel much power to to make many changes except to speak out when I hear statements that are crucially horrible and and anti-Semitic and anti-any other group. Uh, I I think we're in a really dangerous place. And I would like to cry out for, for a coach right now to help with what I see in the world's situation. So what I will say to that is that I think in any discovery of truth, of honesty, of, of and any, any positives, when you open up truth, there's going to be new pain and new negativity and new obstacles. And what I'll say is that I think that that is by design of the, the idea on this earth that things stay complicated and are messy and entangled. But I'll say one step, one step further is I hope that what Caleb can teach us in this piece about having a Ruach, a Heret, you don't have to wait for a coach. Be the coach. Show up for someone else and be the coach. When I say the next generation is hopefully going to be in a spot that are wiser than the generation before, that's at the hand of the generation before to be the coach to push the next generation forward. I used to joke with my dad that I was like a 2.0. I was an upgraded version of him. And I was doing it to you know, rile him up. I was trying to mess with him. And finally, he just shut the whole process down by being like, that's the point. That's how you're supposed to do it. You take all the wisdom you learned in your lifetime and you give it to the people you love before they would have learned it necessarily so that they have a different platform to start from to grow deeper and get bigger and taller like in their in their mindsets. So I think that that idea of, of seeing the world and seeing its pains is both because new truths and possibilities were opened and that can of worms cannot be contained. 
but also because we have an obligation to be the coach, right? We might not always be so positive as Caleb in his Ruach Acheret. We may not always have hope in the face of adversity, but when we are faced with those moments, if we can recognize and stand up and be the coach, be the support, let people know how lonely the world would be if we tried to see it in our own eyes alone, then we have the ability to really be a part of the godly work of continuing Bereshit, continuing this creation, continuing what's magnificent about this earth. George, I see your hand is up. Yes, uh, I agree with what you said, but my point is uh, different. I, my lack of understanding of why you put him and his after your name confuses me because this uh, really says that the dichotomous gender uh, is real and we don't accept uh, the non uh, dichotomous, the, the in-between people, uh, either in uh, the way they dress, the, the way they choose, self-identity uh, operations, or what have you. So I'm I'm asking you a question. No, no, Why, please, yes. What does his and him mean? So, uh, so, so, yeah, I I love that question. Uh, on this Zoom specifically, you have one his, him, and one she, her. So it would seem like a di- that you've created, that you've actually solidified a binary. Yeah. Uh, when what the notion behind adding these pronouns really says is twofold. One, if you are someone who doesn't identify with those, go ahead and throw up what you'd like us to use. And when we see it, we will do our best to be cognizant and to use the selected pronouns one would want. It's really more of a marker to those who don't want these pronouns to see that they don't have to find a spot in the situation, in the, in the conversation to bring it up. Rather, they can just put it up right there, right on their profile, right in their email signature, right on their Zoom. And when I interact and correspond with them, I'll take the obligation of looking for it seeing it and addressing them the way they choose. So in here, it does reflect, it does look quite a bit like that binary. And that, by the way, is another piece about perspective. And so I really appreciate that question being asked. I think, for instance, uh, in my Saturday morning study, we have people who choose to go by other pronouns. And so in their name, they write the pronoun next to the name. And that has helped others to either ask questions or try to use the pronoun correctly. And by the way, it's not simple and it is confusing and there is a lot to it. And there's days that it gets messed up. And it's mainly my high school students who call me out for not being proactive enough in addressing it. And it was after a class with my ninth and 10th graders that I changed my Zoom name in the first place. Okay. Uh, One other question. Some people are using uh, they as the pronoun. Uh, yeah, which upsets me just because that's grammar. Yeah, it's a plural. But the other thing is, uh, it also it, it does draw attention to the issue, which is very good. But there has to be a substitute, uh, and they is not a uh, to me is not a good substitute because uh, the person instead of they, which indicates the person is many as opposed to one person who is bisexual or whatever other 
thing they are. So I, I, I'm just confused by uh, the categories, I guess. Yeah, well, and so look, and Emmelinda wrote a piece that you can look at in the chat about the uh, the confusion of English to begin with, because we do use all kinds of things in, in categories we shouldn't. But what I will say is when I have asked someone who prefers to go by they, uh, what they have told me, which is the way we say it in English, um, is that if they didn't have a plural pronoun, it wouldn't reflect that they feel some of more than one known pronoun. Well, and so, and I hear that and I appreciate that. And I too am confused from time to time and asking questions and looking for guidance and looking for coaching is by far the, the uh, more divinely action to take sitting and just dwelling on it without asking those questions wouldn't get us to, to, to larger questions and to, to more clear and decisive answers. So I very much appreciate you asking. And I think asking is actually how, we move forward in all kinds of things. I saw a couple other hands up and I want to make sure I get a chance to uh, address them. Yeah, Lee, I need you to unmute though, or I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah, I get very confused with binary versus non-binary and the use of they, them, theirs. So it's just confusing to me. And I'm always afraid I'm going to offend someone because I'm not sure yeah. what that means. So I'll tell you. Um, well, I'll tell two things. One, I, I want to thank everyone on this call. I came in with one understanding of what Ruach Aheret meant. And we talked about it, about this notion of a different spirit and joy. But quite frankly, what we've moved to as a community in this moment is asking what does different spirit mean? What does different identity mean? When your identity is part of your spirit, right? That's the difference between gender and sex, right? That's the difference between your identity and your pronouns. And, and like, this is a Ruach Aheret. And I really appreciate us opening this conversation into this way. The only advice I can give you is one, I'm happy to send some resources and reading that I've had. But two, I ask. When I'm not sure, I say, you know, I'm so sorry. If you could just help me understand a little bit more or how would you prefer to be called? And I got to tell you, I have never been met with, I've always been met with, of course, thank you so much for asking because I think the asking is far less frequent than the, than the assumption. Um, Look, we go through this kind of transformation as a society all the time in the change of what's societally appropriate to call a group of people or not. And now it's with gender and now it's with pronoun. Like there's all kinds of, we've moved forward. We've stopped using words that don't feel kind or that were created in bad taste. We were a cautious and considerate and caring by the we right now, I'm talking about the people here. I can't talk about the whole society. We've, there's a lot of troubling pieces of our society, but, but this is how we move forward. We ask the questions, we own it. We don't pretend it's not an issue. And then we're acknowledging our own need for more information and guidance. Uh, your regularly scheduled coach will be back next week for study. <laughs> <clears throat> Happy to be the assistant coach from time to time. Um, I, I, I really believe there's something so holy about study. And, and again, to go back to earlier, something so holy to how much we've been able to breathe life into this text in a different way. I myself have never studied Caleb into the conversation that we developed as a group. 
And so there is just so much wisdom to be uh, discovered by consistently pushing and discussing and collaborating and arguing and disagreeing and any other words that you want to use for connection.